Peace be upon you. So for every question, there is an answer. But there are two kinds of questions that are unanswerable for any given individual. The first one are questions that we lack the understanding to ask. And the second kind are ones that we lack the understanding to understand the answer when answered. In regards to the first example, consider being in class. And as soon as you get to your seat, the professor goes on a uh, lecture for the next 20 minutes with the occasional scribbling of notes on the chalkboard. Then after 20 minutes of talking, they turn to the class and they say, does anyone have any questions? And rather than getting a barrage of questions or anything, what he hears is silence. People awkwardly shuffling in their seats, trying to avoid eye contact. And then the professor assumes that this is an approval, that their silence is an approval that they understood the material. But what this actually is, is that the class listening to this last 20 minutes of the, uh, the uh, professor talking lack the understanding to even formulate a question. Because in order to ask a question, you have to have a foundation by which to ask it from. And if you're so befuddled by what was stated, you wouldn't even know where to start to ask a question. And this is the kind of questions that are unanswerable is because people lack the understanding to ask them. So for instance, my kids are not gonna ask me about how Google did in the stock market today because that would entail that they understand what Google is, what shares are, what a stock market is. And because they lack that basic understanding, they're not gonna pose such questions. Or if we continue with this lecture example, you know, imagine you're in biology class and someone asks the professor about the Golgi apparatus. This is something that can happen only if you have understanding of cell biology and you understand organelles and such an apparatus exists. But let's say you take the top biologists in 1859. Their impression of the cell was that it was just some simple cytoplasm in a membrane. The concept that the cell has this complex molecular machinery is not even in the realm of possibilities of something they understood at that time. So asking specifically about the function of the Golgi apparatus would not even be a question that they would ever formulate because there's a whole slew of understandings that need to be established before they can get into those details. So this covers the first kind of unanswerable questions for people. Again, ones that they can't formulate to ask. But there's a second kind of question that is also unanswerable. But unlike the first, this one does not require in-depth knowledge in order to ask. It's actually quite the opposite. These questions come off incredibly simplistic to ask, but the response that's given is baffling to those who hear it to the point that they don't even understand the answer when it's answered. In the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was later made into a movie, a civilization of super advanced beings created a supercomputer that could answer any question. So after the completion of this machine, the people posed the following question. They said, what is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? So the machine tells that it will answer the question, but it's going to take seven and a half million years. So seven and a half million years go by, they come back, and the machine gives them the answer. And they say, what is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? And the machine tells them, 42. And the whole takeaway from this is that there are some questions that despite being simplistic to ask, the answer that is given back is so complicated that again, we lack the understanding to even comprehend what is being stated. What made me think of this topic 
was that I was in a discussion with someone. And again, they were asking very deep questions about our existence and life and God. And the answers that I was giving back to them was so over their head that they thought I wasn't answering their questions. And I was thinking that how much of religion and this aspect specifically of trust in God has to do around this concept of some of these unanswerable questions. That despite the fact that the answer exists, that either we lack the understanding to ask the right questions or the responses that are given back are beyond our comprehension. So one of the examples that I think perfectly depict this struggle is that of the history of Job. In the Quran, God specifies Job and gives us some details. In Surah 21, verse 83 through 84, it reads, And Job implored his Lord, Adversity has befallen me, and of all the merciful ones, you are the most merciful. We responded to him, relieved his adversity, and restored his family for him, even twice as much. That was a mercy from us and a reminder for the worshippers. In chapter 38, verses 41 through 44, it reads, Remember our servant Job. He called upon his Lord. The devil has afflicted me with hardship and pain. Strike the ground with your foot. A spring will give you healing and drink. We restored his family for him, twice as many. Such is our mercy, a reminder for those who possess intelligence. Now you shall travel the land and preach the message to fulfill your pledge. We found him steadfast. What a good servant. He was a submitter. The fact that God is telling us to remember Job means that this is, again, an individual we should be familiar with. And sure enough, we find the history of Job in the Bible, in the book of Job. And when we read the Bible, the story of Job is very fascinating. In the very first chapter, in the first verse, we get the background of Job. It reads, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Then in verse 6, we see what happened to Job. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Have you blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land? But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan does just that. He takes away Job's livelihood, his crops, his home, his family, all these external factors, but he doesn't lay a finger on Job. And sure enough, Job maintains his integrity to God alone. And it continues in chapter 2. It says, On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered to the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores, from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. What happens here on in the next 35 chapters is an exchange between Job and three of his friends, where each time his friends are going to accuse Job of some sort of wrongdoing, some sort of sinful behavior. And Job, in response, is going to confess that he is blameless, that he did nothing wrong, that maybe God has a grudge against him. And in his confusion, the friends are continuously pressing him to say that the reason this happened is because he must have done something terribly wrong, that God would not allow such a thing to happen to someone who's blameless. Then in the 32nd chapter, a fourth friend shows up and makes a more logical argument that yes, God is just and that God runs the world in a just manner, but that God can afflict hardship as a warning or to build character. Then in the 38th chapter, God responds to Job, and the answer that is given is tremendously profound, but can leave a lot of people utterly confused. It reads, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans? With words without knowledge, brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Then in the verses that follow, God describes the breeding patterns, feeding habits, and migrations of certain animals. Finally, the book of Job describes two terrifying creatures that are called Behemoth and Leviathan, who by their nature are not evil, but are terrifying and not safe. I think this history in the Bible perfectly depicts the shortcoming we have when asking God to explain himself to the outcomes one may see in life. While this is a simple question, the answer is far from it. In everything God does, there is an absolute perfection. This is manifest in the extreme fine-tuning and existence of the universe, with its intricate laws and the unfathomable precision. But this is just one scope. When we consider the ways of biological life and the mechanism that God designed for creatures we are completely oblivious to, God undoubtedly not only knows their behavior, but was the one who mapped it all out. Yet we think that because we see something that appears to be injustice, that somehow 
God forgot that he made a mistake or he didn't account for it. And in regards to understanding justice, we are presented with the allegory of the behemoth and Leviathan to further reinforce, to understand God's justice, that we will have to deal with creatures that are outside of our possible comprehension, let alone the complexity of it all. This is not the response that one would assume when asking this question to the question of why did this happen to Job? In order to understand that, to understand all the backstory, the reasoning, the justification, you'd have to understand the entire complexity of the universe. And this is something that we cannot fathom. Do you think Job had any idea that his history is going to be documented for individuals, billions of individuals, for thousands of years to be contemplating on? Could he fathom that? That today, there's going to be someone who's broadcasting on a podcast for the entire world to be able to hear Job's story. If God tried to explain this to Job and the purpose of what he was doing and why he had to go through this hardship, it would be something he cannot comprehend. So God shows him that the complexity of life, the complexity of all the decisions that God is equating for is beyond our comprehension. And we should humble ourselves that when God decrees something to happen, that we trust in God wholeheartedly with absolute submission. This response, in essence, is posing a question to Job and his friends, that if they would want to establish a world based on this overtly simplistic worldview, that what they are negating is the overt lack of understanding of such complexity they are dealing with. For example, in our world, if someone does wrong, we punish them. If someone does good, we reward them. Now, assume that we give the same kind of process in God's domain in the complexity he's dealing with. So let's say someone steals a car. In this worldly life, we would say justice is taking this individual and putting them in uh, jail. But then contemplate, while you're punishing this individual, what if that individual had a wife? What if that individual had children or a parents or a job that depended on them? By simply removing them from the equation and saying, we're going to put you in prison, does it make sense that we're also punishing the wife, the children, the employer, and all these other individuals who are dependent on this individual because of this one bad decision they made? Now, this is an equation that for us is impossible to grasp, to be able to dole out absolute justice without the slightest infliction of injustice. But you see that this is an impossible task we could never carry out. But this is not outside of the realm of what God does every single moment in our lives. That he has accounted for everything. That no one is going to get an ounce worth of injustice that they don't deserve. That every ounce of hardship we face is designed perfectly by God. Very quickly, you realize that while in our perspective, justice can be doled out, with little consideration to these other points of injustice, this is not how God operates. God takes all these infinite cascading effects into consideration, such that no one in this equation suffers more than they need to. Then, on top of that, God additionally uses any hardship we face or affliction we suffer in any way is for the person's best interest if they draw closer to God by the event and only to their detriment if they turn away. 
In life, when things happen in a linear fashion, again, you do good, good things happen. You do bad, bad things happen. This is something that's easy to conceive. The questions arise to God is when we see injustice, when we see hardship, when we see children and innocent individuals suffering, we say, where is God's justice? God provides us a similar example in Surah 18 of the Quran regarding Moses and his teacher. What is interesting is that where Moses and his teacher met was at the juncture where the two rivers met. In Surah 18 verse 60 it reads, Moses said to his servant, I will not rest until we reach the point where the two rivers meet, no matter how long it takes. The word for two rivers in this verse is Al-Barin. And you see that the same word occurs in Surah 25 verse 53. It says, He is the one who merges the two seas, Al-Barin. One is fresh and palatable, while the other is salty and undrinkable. And he separated them with a formidable and viable barrier. I see this example of Al-Barin, the two seas, as symbolism of what laid ahead for Moses in his lesson with his teacher. In this life, we are accustomed to fresh drinking water. This represents the things that happen in our life where we can make sense of, where things are more cut and dry. I study hard, I get a good test. I work hard, I get good results. I do good things, I get rewarded for it. But there's also another kind of water that is salty and undrinkable. This represents the things in life that don't make sense. The hardships that present themselves, the pain and suffering that we see around us. Why is it sometimes I might study my butt off, but I do poorly on the test? Or I extend myself to try to do good, and I face hardship and persecution. When these outcomes happen, it confuses us. It causes us to have doubt. And this is what Moses was in store for. His life, he was of the plain of the good, fresh, delicious, palatable water. Things happened in a linear, concise fashion. But what he wanted to learn was what was the purpose of the salty, undrinkable water? What was the meaning behind this? And we see that when Moses approaches the teacher, when they finally meet, the dialogue that ensues. In Surah 18, verse 66 through 70, it says, Moses said to him, Can I follow you, that you may teach me some of the knowledge and guidance bestowed upon you? He said, You cannot stand to be with me. How can you stand that which you do not comprehend? He said, You will find me God-willing patient. I will not disobey any command you give me. He said, If you follow me, then you shall not ask me about anything unless I choose to tell you about it. So here we have Moses, one of the honorable prophets of God, asking this individual, this teacher, if he could learn from him. And the response from the teacher says, you can't stand to be with me because how can you stand there which you do not comprehend? But despite this, Moses was still able to go along with him with that condition that he doesn't question him about what he does. So what happens next? Moses' teacher First, he bores a hole into a poor fisherman's ship, rendering it defective. Then he kills a young, innocent boy who has done nothing wrong in the eyes of Moses. And finally, he patches a wall in a community that was unhospitable to him without requesting a wage, despite begging them for food and shelter. And it's at this time, after these three events, that the teacher parts way with Moses. But before doing so, he informs him of why he did these things. And we read in Surah 18, verse 78, 
through 82, it reads, he said, now we have to part company, but I will explain to you everything you cannot stand. As for the ship, it belonged to poor fishermen, and I wanted to render it defective. There was a king coming after them, who is confiscating every ship forcibly. As for the boy, his parents were good believers, and we saw that he was going to burden them with his transgression and disbelief. We will that your Lord substitute in his place another son, one who is better in righteousness and kindness. As for the wall, it belonged to two orphan boys in the city. Under it, there was a treasure that belonged to them. Because their father was a righteous man, your Lord wanted them to grow up and attain full strength, then extract their treasure. Such is mercy from your Lord. I did none of that on my own volition. This is the explanation of the things you cannot stand. Every day in life, we see these kind of events, these things that happen that we cannot stand, that we cannot comprehend. But it's at times like this that we have to trust in God, that God is looking at every single angle, that God is looking at every single scenario, that not even an atom is out of our Lord's control. In Surah 21, verse 23, it reads, He is never to be asked about anything he does, while all others are questioned. Just because God gave us a little bit of knowledge, gave us a little bit of understanding, we will never be able to fathom the complexity and details that goes into the events that transpire in this world. And it's because of that that we have wholeheartedly submitted to God. And once we submit to God, we will have eternal peace. Because we know God, Lord of the universe, is in absolute control. Being part of God's dominion requires that we need to prove our faith under all conditions. That when things seem dire and absolutely like they're not going to get any better, it's at those times are we willing to submit and wholeheartedly put our trust in God. God tells us in the Quran in Surah 29, verse 2 and 3, it says, Do the people think that they will be left to say, We believe, without being put to the test? We have tested those before them, for God must distinguish those who are truthful, and He must expose the liars. It is by God's design that when we say we believe, we are going to be put to the admission test. And if we are steadfast, during this test and we prove the strength of our faith that when things happen that don't make sense that we trust in God wholeheartedly that we draw closer to God that God will transform these situations for our good in surah 2 verse 214 we hear the example it says do you expect to enter paradise without being tested like those before you they were tested with hardship and adversity and were shaken up until the messenger and those who believed with him said where is God's victory God's victory is near. These events that each of us are going to experience in our lives are going to shake us to our core. God tells us that He's going to test us with our money, our lives, our children to see do we worship God under all conditions. In Surah 12 verse 110 it reads, Just when the messengers despair and think that they had been rejected, our victory comes to them. We then save whomever we choose while our retribution for the guilty people is unavoidable. Things inevitably are going to happen in our life that don't make sense. We don't know, is this a test? Is this a retribution? But the system we employ is under all circumstances we draw closer to God and we trust that God is going to make the situation right. 
sometimes in our lives, we're immediately going to see the motivations behind these events that took place, just like the fishermen in their boat. Other times, we're going to be absolutely clueless until the day of resurrection, like the individuals who lost their son. And then there's going to be some that the events already took place and we won't realize the blessing that God has given us until years later in our lives. If we trust in God and we persevere and we're steadfast and we don't let these events that we don't understand have us stray away from God's path, that God will show us victory, that God will give us the contentment and peace that we're in search for. Consider that when you make chocolate chip cookies, one of the ingredients that's necessary is salt. Now, if someone focuses only on the salt and doesn't understand that this ingredient is necessary for the completion of these delicious cookies, then they're going to be perplexed. And the same thing happens in our lives. There's going to be salty moments, moments that are not going to make sense. But if we're patient and we trust in God, at the end of the day, when we look back, we'll be able to see what amazing creation God was able to bestow upon us through the events of our lives. In Surah 4, verse 147, God says, What will God gain from punishing you if you became appreciative and believed? God is appreciative omniscient. God is telling us that He's not going to inflict punishment on a person for no reason, that there's a good reason for everything. But what's interesting, it says God is appreciative. But what does that mean for God to be appreciative? I mean, it's natural that human beings should be appreciative, but here it's saying that God is appreciative. One of the aspects of appreciation is to see the value in things, that someone who's appreciative sees the value. And you can be sure that God sees the value of everything that he's orchestrated. And in this world, God created water that's fresh, palatable, delicious, but he also created water that's salty and undrinkable. But despite this, there's a good reason for everything. And if we submit to God wholeheartedly, by God's leave, he will eventually show us, if not in this world, in the hereafter, the reasons for everything that's happened to us in our lives. Everything that we perceived as injustice, everything that event that didn't make sense, God will clarify that for us when we receive our record. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, we've been spending a lot of time on Discord, and you can find the link to our Discord server below. If you want to reach out via email, you can reach us at QuranTalk at gmail.com. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, you can download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store. Or if you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranStudyApp.com website. And until next time, peace and God bless.